Alright, you can return please to Romans chapter 15. We've been working on Romans 1, 16 and 17 and 3, 21 to 24 last night, and I intended to go to Romans 15, 1 to 6 in our pincer strategy, but we'll do that tonight instead. So Romans chapter 15, with just a nod to 1.17. There is a, an announcement. We are cooperating, and this is up to you. We, we know that you're largely taxed in giving, because we concentrate a lot on our giving to the Salvation Army, I mean goods. But this time, there's we have an opportunity for cooperation with a, an organization called Vision Beyond Borders, and it's Baby and Big Kid Clothing Drive, which will be sent to orphans in Romania. And I think that's a good charity. So we can, and this is also, if you have any questions, see Ralph Anderson. He's kind of spearheading this. If you see him around, ask him. There are, where is he? Is he here? Oh, there you are. Hi, Ralph. You'll, you can be questioned, interrogated about this. Okay. And a worthy charity. So this, there is a pile of notices about them out on the tape table. So keep that in mind. And another important charity, Pastor Brown and Pauletta's charity, the ninth annual Bolathon. Come just to watch Pastor Brown bowl if you don't want to bowl. See how to get a strike. He's getting mad at me. That's, that's a good sign. Okay. Romans chapter 15 and verse 1. That's April 7th, 1 to 4, 15 a person. And a great savings on a four-person team. You get, it's $60. So <laughs> capitalism at work. That's, I love it. Okay. Now, that's going to be a worthy cause and a lot of fun. So I'm even thinking about, when's that date? The 7th. Right, might be there. I don't know. I don't, probably won't go to Florida for another 10 years now since we've been down there for a month and a half. But, all right, let's pray. Father, we're very grateful for another opportunity to be jarred out of ourselves and to live in a reality, in a life that is beyond ourselves and outside of ourselves in your Son, Christ Jesus. He has come, and we thank you for that. You give us life, and that more abundantly, that more abundant life is found not within ourselves as much as outside of ourselves, out from under the dominion of the power of sin and death. Thank you that your Holy Spirit provides that freedom. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is that freedom. And we thank you that we can count on it now, count on you, and that we may walk away from here with absolute confidence, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The power of God to strengthen us according to the proclamation of a mystery. Proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery. So we commit ourselves to you, and as the proverb writer said, we give you our hearts to be taught of you. Proverbs 4.26, you do so in Jesus' name, amen. The title of both last night and tonight will be a part one and two, and it's called A Christological Reading and Exhortation. At the left flank, we have a Christological reading or an interpretation of the key verse in Romans or one of the key verses in Romans as a messianic reading or a Christological reading. And then at the other flank, where we're going to be going in Romans 15.1-6, we have a Christological exhortation, an exhortation with Jesus Christ being the supreme exemplar for our conduct. So Romans 1.17, summarizing very briefly, Jesus Christ is the righteous one. The righteous one shall live by faith. According to Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous one is Jesus Christ, and he is the one who lives by faithfulness. This is what we call, what I call a Christological reading, not identifying the righteous one as an individual believer who believes to receive justification, but the righteous one is Jesus Christ himself, who lives, that is by resurrection, as the effect of his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. His faithfulness. This reading is matched by a Christological reading in Romans 15.9, where we identified the I in Romans 15.9. I will praise you among the Gentiles. In fact, briefly, we'll look there in Romans 15, starting at verse 8, and then we're going to back up into one. But Romans 15.8, for I, that's Paul, the I there is Paul, for I, Paul, say that Christ 
became a minister of the circumcision. That's the Jew corresponding to Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Christ became a minister of the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to make good on the promises made to the patriarchs. And verse 9, so that Gentiles will glorify God for his mercy. Therefore, the Gentiles is the Greek there, corresponding to Romans 1.16 on the left flank. As it is written, therefore, I, this I is Christ. A lot of interpretive value goes into interpreting the first person singular, I. And here it's Christ doing the speaking. Therefore, I, Christ, will acknowledge, and that word is praise in this case, as we will compare that with Romans 14, 11, a little bit later on. I will acknowledge or praise you, speaking to God the Father, among the Gentiles, and sing psalms to your name. The picture that we have here, and I definitely believe that the I is Christ. When David spoke, or when he wrote psalms, he said in Second Samuel 23, 2, the Holy One spoke by my mouth, by my tongue. The Spirit spoke by me. The Holy One is the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ spoke through David in the Psalms. So many times when we have this first person singular, we have David in one sense speaking, but in a greater sense we have his greater royal descendant, Jesus Christ, doing the speaking. And it echoes down the corridors of history to our own time. So this is what I would call a messianic reading or a Christological reading. Therefore I, that's Christ, will acknowledge you, God, among the Gentiles. Those are the Gentiles that will have received mercy, the, the nations, and sing Psalms to your name. What we have here is a picture of Jesus Christ himself leading a universal chorus of praise to God the Father. This happens on the occasion when all of his enemies will have been placed under his feet and the last enemy, death, will have been utterly annihilated. And then he will submit himself to the Father. And here we understand what happens when he does that is he leads a chorus of praise to his Father. And so we have right now the invitation of Jesus Christ to all of us to be early, early joiners in that chorus of praise. And it comes by understanding the universal mercy of God. And that makes us sort of like precocious children who are learning this in advance of its occurrence. And so the order of eschatological events, Jesus Christ has all his enemies placed under his feet, the last enemy's death. And therefore, every knee of every resurrected person of all humanity genuflects. Every tongue praisefully acknowledges Jesus to be Yahweh. But then Jesus Christ, having received universal praise, turns and gives it to the Father and leads all humanity and all angelic creatures, in fact, all of creation, everything that has breath, praises Yahweh. Jesus leads that chorus of praise. You can sing in harmony with him now if you want, or not. I prefer to. Jesus Christ himself leads the chorus of universal praise to God the Father. In Romans fifteen six. Paul urges all of the saints in Rome to join this chorus of praise with one mouth. Please notice the phrase, one mouth. There is a universal hamartiology in Romans. In my notes, I abbreviate it this way. Hamartiology is H-A. Ha-ha. And it's from the word hamartia, which means sin, but it's a, it's a branch of theology. Hamartiology. Paul has, in his theology, he has a universal hamartiology. We studied that last night. There is no difference, he says, between Jew and Greek, for all sinned. All have sinned. All have sinned. Universal hamartiology. And then he comes up with his universal soteriology, which I put like that in my notes just for brevity. Soteriology. Universal salvation. A universal hamartiology, which indicates man's total inability to rectify himself by any means in himself, by any resources at his own hand. And soteriology is God's universal act of deliverance accomplished in the Christ event, but also accomplished in 
multiple billions of events of individual acts of salvation, for by grace you are saved through the faithfulness of another. So Paul, using a universal homardiology, all sinned, and a universal soteriology, justifying life comes to all through the obedience of Jesus Christ, he brings these to bear on the pride of group bias in the, among the saints in Rome. Cells, not really churches, but cells that meet in tenements or slums in Rome. Cells that meet in homes in the suburbs of Rome or the city, in the middle of the city, the imperial slaves of Caesar, who are sometimes very well-to-do and sometimes have a lot of authority meeting there. But there is a multiple rift between them. There's a wall of partition that's been built up that keeps separate cells in their separate corners. This may have been the prelude to denominationalism. And it's up to Paul. Paul uses weapons here. Not to knock down believers as much as to knock down the walls of partition. We're going to read about that a little bit more as we continue. This message has a density of doctrine to it that's quite remarkable. So keep in touch. And they'll be in print also. The value of the notes is that it may not capture the whole verbal message because that's different sometimes. The verbal message much have much, often has much more in it than the written. But the written will pick up stuff that's not in the verbal. And what I do, what I do is a final couple of edits. I add a lot of scripture references and parentheses that I won't mention in the spoken word. So I do recommend reading the notes. And if somehow you can't get the notes because you don't have access to the internet, you should somehow let us know or drop a note at the table so that we might print out one of these once in a while. But what we have now is a universal homardiology in Romans and a universal superiology. There is also in Romans the echo of the prediction of a universal praise to God in the writings of the prophets. What is there left after soteriology, after universal salvation? There's nothing left but worship, praise, gratitude to the Savior, Savior God. O Lord, my God, my Savior. And so, that's true also in Romans. There is also in Romans, therefore, the echo of the prediction of a universal praise to God in the writings of the prophets, the key verse being Isaiah 45, 23, which is, finds an echo, back up just a little bit with me, have patience, please, to Romans 14, 11. This is also still on the right flank. Romans 14, 11, Paul says, For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me will bow every knee, and every tongue will give praise to me. Now you say, I thought that's supposed to be a confession there. Ex homologeo is the word. And however, you, here it's used with a dative case in speaking of God. A.T. Robertson observes in his word pictures in the Greek New Testament that ex homologeo, with a dative case, as it appears here in Romans 14.11, in that case, the idea is to give praise to or to give gratitude to. So every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will give praise to me, says the Lord. So this is the universal chorus of praise. This really has a, du a dual meaning. In Philippians 2, 9 to 11, every knee bows, every tongue acknowledges that Jesus is Lord, or that Yahweh is Yeshua, that the Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus of the New Testament. But here, there is the second phase of that in which every knee bows, every tongue sings praise to God the Father in a chorus led by Jesus Christ. Imagine that now. I never even saw that part of eschatology until recently it started to form up in the scriptures here. So now we're ready to hit Romans 15.1, another Christological reading. This time it is an exhortation. This time it's an encouragement. This time it's an urgent exhortation. And I've briefly hit my translation of it last night, but here's my translation from the Greek. We who are the strong. Now we're going to see this whole debate between the strong, the group that calls itself the strong, but there was, and you can't be too rigid here. It's not just Jews that are part of the weak. It's not just Jewish Christians that are part of the weak groups. It's not just Gentile Christians that are part of the strong in faith group and take pride in it. But there is a mild crossover. It is generally the Gentile Christian group who are exempt from following of certain holy days. They're exempt from the observance of certain kosher dietary rules of Torah, just kind of leftover rules that are followed by some Jewish saints in Rome. 
So the Gentile saints, largely Gentile, but some Jewish who were very much aware of their freedom, but became Pharisees of freedom and flaunted their freedom, even at the expense of the tender consciences of young Jewish Christian believers. For example, today is, and I notice this because I always send my son a happy birthday on March 1st because it's his birthday. Happens to be his 35th. And of course, he came into our home when I was 11. So there's, uh, but I sent him the word of the day thing because it's about Purim. Today is the feast of Purim that the Jews celebrate. And I think it's a significant holiday because it's from the book of Esther. And it celebrates the aversion of a Holocaust that could have happened to the Jewish people under the rule of Xerxes because of the advisor named Haman. It was reversed by the courage of Esther and by the wisdom of her uncle Mordecai. And so the Jews celebrate this day today. Now, who's to say that a lot of Jewish Christians don't mark this day as special? Would you despise them if they did? Would you consider them weak in faith? Well, there were people in Romans who thought that. These people still esteem one day over another because of the Jewish calendar. And so in Romans 14.5, Jewish Christians were sometimes despised by either the Jewish Christian that was totally free from that and flaunted his freedom or the Gentile Christian who was free from it and considered that to be too much of a leftover of Judaism. And so they're weak in faith and they're, because of that, they're despised, despised. And there was a reverse reaction. Some of the Jewish Christians or the Jewish saints who still followed after certain kosher rules were maybe deeply offended if they went to the home of a Gentile who was having a pig roast. And there was a great offense there. They could eat whatever they wanted. And so the Jews, some of the Jewish Christians still had those scruples hanging over them. It didn't mean they didn't believe in Christ. It didn't mean they weren't in Christ. It simply meant that they had certain overhang of some of those things. And so they judged these animalistic Gentiles. And so Paul is getting at the heart of this thing by saying all of us have sinned and we're all justified by grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So there is no difference. So if you, if you despise, say, a Jewish Christian or what they call themselves completed Jews or whatever, you despise them because maybe they're celebrating the Purim today. I think it's kind of neat. I mean, I, I like the celebration. You, you pretty much go Meshugna on that day, which means you go nuts. And it's, it's legit to go nuts on Purim because they're celebrating. They're not celebrating the sadness of a Holocaust that happened. They're celebrating the glorious joy of a Holocaust averted. And that was today. It's today, the Feast of Purim. It's also in the United Kingdom, St. David's Day. So talking about David, too. Please don't despise me. I'm celebrating. I'm, I'm, I'm leaning toward the Jewish saints tonight. You know, now, Paul, who's a Jew, he leans toward the Gentiles. Watch what he does here. It's absolutely brilliant. So, in Romans 15, 1, we who are the strong. And he, we should put this in quotes because he's saying, we who are the strong. Now, there was a group of strong in faith, Gentile and Jewish believers who were truly free, but they didn't despise their brothers and sisters who still were scrupulous about some of the Jewish things and the date. Mostly it was calendrical or having to do with the Jewish calendar or dietary, having to do with certain dietary regulations. And so, Paul said, we who are the strong. He identified here with a largely Gentile group of Christians. We are, but notice what he says, obligated. This is a word we've seen before on the left flank, O-P-H-E-I-L-O-M-E-N. And it means to be a debtor. Paul said it before in Romans 1.14, I am a debtor to Jews and Greeks and barbarians. You give them the gospel. And that's the reason I haven't come to Rome yet, because I'm paying that debt. I'm going to places where the gospel's never been preached before. So that's why I haven't come to you guys yet who have already had the gospel preached. But you guys need it preached among you for a different reason, to bring a unity of the spirit and the bond of peace among your scattered, shattered, segregated cells of Christians. So we who are the strong are obligated to bear patiently with the frailties of the weak. Bear patiently with them. So Romans 14, 1, we're going to get there sometime. He says, if you're going to receive someone into your home or your church, don't receive them with disputations and arguments. Get them into the house and start arguing with them. 
So instead, we bear patiently the frailties of the weak. So because much of the divisiveness among the saints in Rome was rooted in the different heritages of the saints, that is, Jewish or Gentile, Paul, who in Romans 11.2, definitely identified himself as an Israelite, here identifies himself with the strong, which is a largely Gentile group. But he was among the part of the group of the strong, or a group of the strong that did not despise the weak at all. There was a group of strong who despised the weak. There was a group of strong, probably including Aquila and Priscilla and some others that were mentioned in Romans 16, who were strong in faith, liberated from all the strictures of the, of the Jewish law, but who did not despise their brothers and sisters who still held on to some of those preferences of days and observances of diets. So really, when you think about it from a perspective way back, stepping way back from it, it's kind of petty that they thought about these things, but it went deeper than that. It went deeper than that. What's Paul doing here? Identifying with the primarily or predominantly Gentile Christian group, even though he's a Jew. He's bringing peace. He is identifying himself with the Gentiles who were not attached to any dietary or calendrical observances and who were consequently judged by many of the Jewish saints. So he put himself in a position to be judged, and he put himself in a position of identifying with the Gentiles here. Again, what's he doing? He's becoming both a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles, as is his policy in 1 Corinthians 9, in order to save all of them from resentment that's rooted in group biases, which in turn are rooted in the malady which we call, and which Martin Luther called, curvature. Really, it's A-E. I'm talking Latin here now. Curvaturae in ad se. Curvature in upon yourself. Curvature in. I was playing with the uh, letters a little bit today, and I got C-I-A-S as an abbreviation. And if you pronounce it, it looks like C-us. C-us. Curvature, curvaturae in ad se. Curvature in upon oneself. What is this power of sin? Sin as a power. What does it do? It causes a person to have curvature in upon themselves. What happens when we're free from the curvaturae in ad se? That pressure is relieved and we're able to stand upright instead of having curvature in ourselves, instead of having a spiritual scoliosis situation and a terrible problem. This is the individual and group problem that Paul is attempting to heal, really, through the ministry of the word. And so these group biases that result in resentment, which is hostility, Mutual hostility is rooted in group biases, which are rooted in turn in the malady of curvaturae in adesse. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, in a verbal echo of Paul's definitive eschatological text, which is 1 Corinthians 15.24-28, which we studied in Better Call Paul, Paul writes this, I have become all to all in order to save all. Pantas, all. I have... Some translations don't get that, but the better earlier translations actually have him saying, I have become all to all. Here, I become a Jew to the Jew to relate to the Jew. I become a Gentile to the Gentile to relate to the Gentile in order to save all. In other words, I'm committed to a commission in which God is eventually going to save all, and I want to be part of that, and I want to have a demonstration of that salvation through my ministry. I want many to be saved. So he anticipates a universal salvation, but he anticipates his own ministry going a long way toward that. The preaching of the gospel jars us into a capital R reality beyond ourselves. The preaching of the gospel jars us into a reality. Sometimes it gently coaxes, but sometimes it jars us into a reality beyond ourselves, beyond our performance, beyond our ancestry, beyond our cultural heritage, beyond our human history, and beyond even our humanity in Adam. This is the reason why we meet for the word. The faith that the Holy Spirit awakens, he wants to keep awake. 
to awake and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. That's why we meet together. We get jarred a little bit or coaxed a little bit outside of ourselves, outside of this curvaturae in ad se, to live extra se, outside of yourself, in Christo, in Christ, by pneumatos, the Spirit. This is the reason why we meet, for the Word, for the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. Preaching the Word, otherwise known as proclaiming Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery that is now manifested by the commandment of God through the writings of the prophets. Get used to that long phrase. It's from Romans 16, 25 to 26. That proclamation knocks down that which Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, called, quote, a perverse desire for superiority on the part of the congregation. The proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery repeatedly knocks down that which Dietrich Bonhoeffer called, quote, a perverse desire for superiority on the part of the congregation. Now, of course, the perverse desire for superiority must also be knocked down in the preacher. If not, he might create a personality cult around himself made up of disciples with this malady. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I am of Apollos. I am of this guy. I am of this guy. I won't read anybody else. My pastor says everybody else is an idiot. So I only listen to one man and I'm of him. I am in a cult around him. Therefore, this perverse desire for superiority and for lording it over others also has to be knocked down in the preacher. If not, he makes a cult around himself of disciples rather than disciples of Jesus Christ and imitators of God. Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. The perverse desire for superiority is exactly what Jesus Christ confronted and knocked down with his disciples. This doesn't happen in seminaries. It should be a course on knocking down the perverse desire for superiority. Welcome to knocking down the perverse desire for superiority class, future preachers. So, God does that outside the classroom. The world is the classroom. In Matthew 20, 25 to 28, and I'm leading up to something here, he used himself as the example of service to others and self-sacrificing love. In Matthew 20, 25, especially 28, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer or present or give up his life as a ransom for many. He told his disciples that they were not to imitate the Gentile rulers. He got them together and he says, you know these Gentile rulers, these Caesars, these Herods, mostly Roman rulers, they're dictators and tyrants and they lord it over their subjects. It's not going to be that way with you. It's not going to be that way with you. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter was there and he heard those words. And you know what he wrote later? In 1 Peter 5, 3. He wrote to pastors, himself a pastor, he wrote to pastors, quote, not to exercise dominion over those entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5, 3. Paul, on the other hand, gives the meaning of many for whom Jesus gave his life as a ransom, and he interprets it as being all in Romans three twenty three to 26, in Romans five eighteen, in Romans eleven thirty two, and again in 1 Timothy 2, 6, he gave himself a ransom for all. Paul also uses the Lord Jesus Christ as the example. So that's where Romans 15 comes in and matches with Matthew 20, 25 to 28. Paul also uses the Lord Jesus Christ as an example of the kind of love that serves others. Curvaturai in adse is the opposite of serving others. Freedom from sin is the freedom not only to worship God, but to look outside of ourselves toward the neighbor and to work for his or her good, to serve for his or her good, to please our neighbor for the good. It turns us outside. We not only love the Lord our God, but we love our neighbor as ourselves as a result of the freedom from the power of sin. You can have all other kinds of freedom, but if you're not free from sin, you're truly, truly a slave of the most slavish kind of slavery. Jesus said that in John 8.35, 8.34 and 35. 
So to be free from sin, but to be in other kinds of imprisonment or other kinds of confinement in this life is not really slavery. It's free. As Paul said when he was in chains, I wish you could be all together like I am, he said. Except, of course, for these chains. Because he was a free man in chains. While the man on the throne was enslaved to sin while he was free. And while slaves waved palm fronds over him. Give him a little breeze in the hot sun. A slave. So then, the entire ethos of the human being, the entire philosophy, we could say it, of the human being in curvatura in adse, see us, is to please oneself. It is to live for oneself. And people say it today, believe in yourself. See how far that takes you in life. I can believe in God for me, for myself, for my family, for my loved ones, for my fellow saints. But I'll be damned if I believe in myself. Quite literally, I will be. <laughs> so, the entire ethos of the human being in curvatur in ad se, let's just call it see us, is to please oneself, to live for oneself, and to oneself. To get ahead at the expense of others or merely at the neglect of others. This includes the urge to control others. Often the so-called weak control the strong by guilt, as the strong try to control the weak by intimidation. The entire activity of the human being in CIAS, in curvature in upon itself, is a quest for superior honor. A major task of Romans the Epistle is to end that quest. The weapons employed by the Apostle are mighty through God, he says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5, which he wrote just a few months before Romans. The weapons of the warfare that he uses are mighty through God to do so. That is, to end the quests of arrogance and the quest for superior honor. These same weapons are effective to bring about obedience or allegiance to Christ in 2 Corinthians 10, 5b to 10, 6. The command issued here, then, is to bear patiently with the frailties of the weak, including, well, do they have to celebrate Purim today? Do they have to eat vegetables on a certain day? Do they have to do this? Do they subscribe to that? Well, what are you going to do to them now? Be a Pharisee of freedom and jump all over them for it? You're going to flaunt your freedom and drop down a stake that's been offered to idols in the strip district of Corinth? You're going to lay that down just to say how free you are, just to damage that brother's conscience? What are you going to do? Or are you going to bear with the frailties of the weak? So listen, love is patient. The command issued here is to bear patiently with the frailties of the weak rather than to boast in our own strength, rather than despising the weak. Love is patient. 1 Corinthians 13.4 Love endures all things. That means it bears patiently in 13.7. Love bears patiently with the frailties of the weak. Love is obligated to do so. How can you be a grace preacher and speak of obligation? Very easily. Because it's right in here. Grace is obedience. Love builds up. Have you heard that before? Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. 1 Corinthians 8.1 That is, when he speaks of knowledge, he doesn't mean it is knowledge that we better have. A man should boast, a woman should boast in that she knows me, says God, and that I exercise mercy in all the earth. That's a knowledge we ought to have. This is a knowledge, for example, the knowing that all foods are okay for consumption, that one day is just like another day, like the Feast of Purim is just like any other day, and that there's not one day that's any more holy than another day. Now, I know this, but to use that knowledge as a club over someone else is a puffing up. It's an inflation. That's what he's talking about. But to some, that day in Romans 14.5 is esteemed above other days. It's a special day. So leave them alone. 
There's a lot of things that pertain here to Roman Catholics. They have certain days that they esteem above other days. And they, so you might see them on a certain Wednesday once a year, and they've got a cross-shaped ashes on their forehead. What are you going to do? So, well, that's stupid. That's, you know, no, that's something. They esteem something, and there might even be a modicum of Christian faith in their devotedness. Your knowledge that you don't have to do that to be approved of God, you don't have to do that to have God's approval, can be arrogance. You see, that's what he's talking about. Knowledge puffs up. We know that one day really isn't any more holy than another day. But a lot of Christians love Christmas. Because you get stuff. Some Christians like Christmas because it truly has what they call the magic of the season. And they really do get drawn to the birth of our Savior. The incarnation of Christ becomes very powerful and meaningful to them. So what? Leave them alone. But to use such knowledge to despise those who esteem certain days over others is to violate love and simply to please oneself. Paul drops the hammer pretty good in this one in Romans 14, 15. He says, you have stopped walking in love. Man, that would sting, wouldn't it? It would to you because you want, you're all about wanting to love one another as Christ loved the church. You want to do that. You want to love one another as Christ loved us. That's what your goal is. So if some preacher comes up and says, you stopped walking in love, you know what your problem is? You stopped walking in love a few days ago when you started living to please yourself and you thought you could flaunt your liberty at someone else's expense. And they don't have the bold, you've emboldened them. You haven't edified them. You emboldened them because you get to use that product or drink that thing and they don't. But they don't have the liberty to do it or the conscience to do it. But then you flaunted your liberty and offended their conscience and really ruined their spiritual life for who knows how long. Paul says, destroyed them, destroyed them. That's an over exaggeration. But if we look at it that way, we'll be more careful. If I know I could destroy my brother by flaunting a certain liberty, by being a Pharisee of liberty, I'd be very careful, wouldn't I? Instead of saying, oh, he'll toughen up. We have no idea what we're doing. So Romans 15, 2. Each one should strive to accommodate to his or her neighbor for his good. To build him up. Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. So Romans 15, 3. I love this. This, to me, summarizes so much of the one I know as my Lord and my Savior. It says, for Messiah did not please himself. Now, we won't have to go into that being the secret of marriage. Pause for effect. Messiah didn't please himself. Love husbands, love your wife like Messiah loves the church. Messiah didn't please himself. It wasn't his goal. Instead, as it is written, this is one thing he keeps doing, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written, because he shows that the words of the prophets, which includes the Psalms and Torah and the Proverbs, the words of the prophets, all speak of Christ. As it stands written, the insults that were aimed at you have fallen on me. Guess who said that? Messiah. The insults that have aimed, were aimed at you, were meant for you, have fallen on me. Now, what's that mean? Psalm 69.9, incidentally. It's Messiah speaking again. In 15.3, quoting Psalm 69.9, we have the voice of the Messiah speaking again, as we do in Romans 15.9. The insults meant for others were received by Jesus. What did Paul do when he called himself the strong? He was ready to accept the insults that would come from the weak who judged the strong. When he identified with the weak and the frailties of the weak, he was ready to accept the insults that were meant from the strong to the weak. But what does it mean that Jesus Christ took the insults that were meant for you and for me. What does it mean? Well, in John 8, we have a wonderful, splendid example. When Jesus' adversaries accused him, are you not a Samaritan and don't you have a demon? 
That's a double charge. That's a double barrel charge. That's both triggers at once. Jesus said, I don't have a demon. And they're waiting for him to say, and I'm not a Samaritan, but he didn't say I'm not a Samaritan. You know why? Because the insult meant for the Samaritan was taken by him. He was glad to be identified with the Samaritan. In fact, the good Samaritan was the star of a controversial parable. He's the good guy, not the Jewish guy, not the priest, not the Levite, not the Pharisee who walked on by, the good Samaritan. And so Jesus identified with the good Samaritan. In fact, he is the good Samaritan and the good Samaritan. Parable. And the man that was beat up is all of us. And the price that he paid to heal us, he laid out. So he went to Samaria and the whole town came out in Sychar to believe in him. He went to Nazareth and he could do no miracle because they didn't believe in him. So why shouldn't he identify with the Samaritan? So it was a, a vicious insult to the Samaritans and to him to be called a Samaritan, but he didn't bat it away. He just said, he didn't answer it. He just said, I don't have a demon. Which is curious because he did die the death of a demon-possessed man. I said I'd be saying some shocking things. There's one of them. I'll explain it. Not tonight. Now, he redeemed a lot more than you think. Meaning a lot more than just human beings. So then, what does it also mean? He let the insult meant for the despised Samaritans fall on him. On the cross, Jesus let all the insults and all the blasphemies spoken by human beings, men and women against God. He let all of them fall on himself. Messiah did not please himself. I said last night, if he were to be left in the grave and not arisen from it, it would have been a good epitaph to have. I don't think you can have a better epitaph on your gravestone. She did not please herself. If her children could say that of her. I could say that of my mother. On the day that I did her eulogy, I said, my mother went into the presence of Christ on December 11th. On January 10th, her children rise up and call her blessed. And that's exactly what we did. She did not please herself. That's the definition of my mother's life. She was a Roman Catholic. She gave food to the poor every Thursday. She extended her hands to the poor, says is a description of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. She gave an envelope was sealed on her lap for two hours before she went to the Sunday Mass. It was a gift. You wouldn't recognize it. I wouldn't recognize it. And I didn't until much later in life that that was her devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it would not have been perceived as that by some. But that's exactly what it was. And outside the church, outside the food pantry, outside the Eucharistic minister hall where she served, she didn't please herself. I know, looking at my life, I can't ask for that on my gravestone. I can't do it. It'd be a lie. So, the very fact that I know that I'm very unlike my Savior pushes me to grow in the knowledge of him. In that way, I hope I'm your example. Not so much that I'm like him, but that I'm an example of a man who knows he's not like him, so I press on. So follow me as I press on. And so... On the cross, we always get there, don't we? To those sinners, hamartoloi, that's people really controlled by sin, radically controlled by sin, those who fiercely contradicted him in Hebrews 12, 3. He said, in so many words, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but it gives a sense precisely in John 8, 28. When you will have lifted me up, you will know that I am and that I do not please myself. That's what he said. I don't do my own will, but him that sent me, his will. Meaning, I don't please myself. You'll know when I'm on the cross. You'll know when I'm nailed to the tree. You'll know then I didn't please myself. So to know the Messiah is to know the one who did not please himself, but happily fulfilled the will of another, one whom he called Abba. The spirit of that son is sent into our hearts, crying Abba. And that means not just that we recognize God as our father, but we recognize that we are here not to please ourselves. So look at Romans 15.4. We've got a few more minutes for my limit. 
for everything that was written before. Now we have bibliology, which I do this in my study, bibliology. Everything that was written before. That's the scriptures before the New Testament. The scriptures are the writings of the prophets. Was written for our instruction. In other words, it's part of the teaching to which we are handed over. You can compare 1 Corinthians 10.11 with Romans 15.4. Do it. 1 Corinthians 10.11, 2 Timothy 3.16. Everything that was written before was written for our instruction to the end that, or for the objective of that, through the endurance and through the encouragement imparted by the scriptures, we would have hope. Now may the God who is the source of endurance and encouragement grant you agreement with one another. That's what he's after, see? It's not, he's, he's not after trying to teach a Reformation doctrine of justification by faith. He's after trying to get these people to be in agreement with one another. Which means literally to think the same way. And that thinking the same way doesn't mean having the same set of dogmatics. It means thinking the same way that the Messiah thinks who doesn't please himself. And it also means, according to Messiah Jesus, this refers directly back to Mark 9.50 when Jesus said to his disciples, have salt in yourselves and live at peace among yourselves. Salt in yourselves is what the Spartans would call esoterike harmonia, inner harmony, intrapsychic tranquility. It's produced through the believing of the word. And because you have that, you have the capacity for exoteric, outgoing harmony with others. That's what the Spartans strove for in a humanistic virtuous sense. This is a divine virtue produced in us. According to Messiah Jesus, that means two things. That is according to his command in Mark 9.50. But it also means according to Messiah Jesus means to think the same way that Messiah Jesus thought in not pleasing himself. He never lived curvaturae in adise. He always lived extra se, outside of himself, to his father. I didn't come here to do my own will, but the father's who sent me. What I hear, that I speak. What I say is what I've heard him say. What I do is what I see him do. I didn't come here to live inside of myself for myself. I came here to live extra, say, outside of myself in my father to do my father's will. And if you have seen me, you've seen my father. So when you see me crucified, you see the father's love for you. So he says in verse six, this agreement, so that together with what? With one mouth, you may glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's glorified the God, God and Father. Why? Because Jesus Christ is leading that chorus. And you're early joiners in the chorus that's going to be universal. How blessed are you? How blessed am I? God is the source of encouragement and fortitude. He will strengthen the weak by his power. So blessed are the weak. He will break the strength of the strong in mid-course, it says in Psalm 102, 23. He weakens me in the way. A better translation of that is he will break the strength of the strong. So if the strong shouldn't boast in his strength or her strength, because God's going to break their strength right in mid-course of their life, right in the prime of their life, he'll break their strength. Why? So that he can strengthen their weakness, strengthen them in their newfound weakness. Blessed are the strong because their strength will be broken so God can strengthen them when they're weakened. Blessed are the weak because God will just plain strengthen them in their weakness. And my God has the power to strengthen you according to my gospel, Paul says in Romans sixteen twenty-five. So everybody gets the blessing of God's power of salvation. So I'll close with that. I said this early on in our study of Romans, and I just want to say this is where it comes out. In Romans 3.19, every mouth in the world is shut as far as human boasting. Here, in Romans 15.6, all the believers in Rome have one opened mouth. And with that one opened mouth, they are to glorify the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do they glorify God? Because they have ceased to glory in themselves with the boasting that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.6 is not good. It's not good. Boasting that corrupts the whole assembly, like leaven leavens a whole batch of dough. When Paul said a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he was saying a little bit of boasting 
will corrupt the whole assembly because it'll start a corner. It'll start a segregation movement, and one will be in this quadrant, another will be in this quadrant. There'll be comparisons, measuring oneself by oneself, a gauging of each other's performance in comparison with one another. And those who compare themselves by themselves and measure themselves by themselves are not wise. A polite way of saying they are stupid. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13. This is not according to the doctrine to which we have been handed over in Romans six seventeen. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of the doctrine to which we have been handed over, the author and perfecter of the faithfulness in which we participate, the author and perfecter of the faith that works by love, which announces that circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing at all, but a faith that works by love, energized by the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of the Holy One, who is Jesus Christ. 